This morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, so if you would please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2. Uh, This week as I was preparing to preach this message, uh, the reality and the privilege of doing expository preaching um, became very real to me. Um, Because expository preaching, you start at the beginning of a book. Um, Typically, you can do other ways of expository preaching. But typically, in expository preaching, you start at the beginning of a book. And you trace what God says and what God teaches through the entire book. And the Lord put it on my heart to do that with First and Second Samuel. Who knows how long it'll take. Um, this passage was difficult in a number of ways. One, it goes from verse 11 to 36. That's a lot to preach. That's a lot to preach from narrative. Secondly, there's some heavy stuff in these passages. It's heavy because we're coming across very serious sins, um, specifically the sins of rebellion, the sin of insubordination, and the sin of sexual immorality. The good news in all of this is that at the end of the passage, there's a reference to Christ the Messiah. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which translates or which um, gives us the word Messiah. Um, The New Testament translates that to Christos, where we get the word Christ. And I'll mention a little bit later um, that as I'm reading and studying this, I'm convinced, and other commentators are as well, that this reference is to Christ the Messiah. Now that comes in verse 35. We've got a little bit of work to get there. Before we read about this wonderful ministry and the blessings of Christ, come to the seriousness of sin. Um, That is the passage I am preaching this morning. We can summarize this passage as a call to faithfulness. A call to faithfulness to Christ for those who serve Christ. From the pastor elder down to anyone who serves anywhere into the church. Down to anyone who belongs to the church because we are all servants of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 Peter calls the church, using, using the language of Israel, that we are a kingdom, that we are priests. Revelation says that too. So just like Israel was a kingdom of priests, of priests, the church, in a very similar way, resembles Israel. So what we're reading today was written to Israel, a call for them to have faithfulness to Christ. It's also very applicable to us today, a call to faithfulness to serve Christ. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we approach you because you are holy. There is no one like you. Lord, you saved us while we were yet sinners, Lord. It's completely your grace, your mercy, and your love. And we come here today, Lord, to read from your word, to be convicted of sin, and also to praise you because you preserve your faithful ones because of the work of the faithful one, Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would convict hearts today and that you would move hearts to repent of sin and hearts to love you, cherish you, to love Christ and depend on the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. We live in a time and among a culture that celebrates sexual immorality and rebellion against authority. This country was born in rebellion, rebellion against England. 
This country has recently seen rebellion in movements such as the social justice movement who are rebelling in for the whatever cause that seems fit to them with that movement. Rebellion has even infiltrated churches throughout the country. One emerging movement is known as Christian nationalism, which is a growing concept where it's okay for Christians to resort to violence in the name of ensuring America stays Christian. I don't know where that movement is going, but it is new and it is emerging. And the main thing with the people who write the books on it are saying it's okay for Christians to be violent, to be insubordinate, and to rebel to ensure a Christian America. This country also worships sexual immorality in a number of ways, from the LGBTQ million letters plus to just the the rampant acceptability of pornography to the movie, movies which are just filled with praising and worshiping sexual immorality. I remember being in high school when President Clinton was caught in an affair. He was impeached by the House of Representatives on December 19th, 1998. You know, when he was impeached, it wasn't, he wasn't impeached because of the affair. He was impeached because he lied under oath to a grand jury. So having a sexual affair was not enough to impeach him, but lying was. This country does not have respect for the Bible's standards, for God's standards of sexual immorality. God has no acceptance for it at all, especially among leaders, especially among God's people. And this has penetrated churches um, around the country. Recently, I read an article how a prominent evangelical Christian pastor in a prominent church was caught being in an inappropriate online relationship. And he kept it vague, but he was caught in an inappropriate online relationship with someone who was not his wife. He took a three-month leave and started preaching again. So... Is this the standards that God has for his people? Should we take sexual immorality lightly? Should we be insubordinate? Should we be rebellious? These are questions that we need to ask and go to the Bible for answers. Today we're going to be reading about how insubordination and sexual perversion infiltrated Israel's religious institution. And we will see how in the midst of the spiritual corruption of the spiritual leaders, God faithfully raised and preserved a young man who humbly submitted himself to God's word. And then again, like I alluded to earlier in verse 35, after we tackle some really difficult things, there is this reference to that humble submission is related to and dependent on the ministry of Christ. And we see all of this in the Old Testament. Um, that's one of the reasons I love preaching from the Old Testament. There is so much that the authors wrote about for Christ. Therefore, as we read about those two types of people, they're going to be reading about Eli's sons. They're insubordinate. They're sexually immoral. We're going to be reading about Samuel, Hannah's son, who submits himself to God's word. As we read about these two types of people, we will be asking which one of them can serve the Messiah. 
It's kind of as an outline for today's message. These are uh, three aspects to consider when we think about serving Christ. The first is, the first aspect is there are those who are not qualified to serve Christ. The second is there are those who are qualified to serve Christ. And number three, we're going to learn about God's faithfulness to preserve his people so they can serve Christ. My hope is that we walk away today from this message with hearts repenting of sins that need repentance and with hearts of joy rejoicing in the hope of God's faithfulness to preserve his faithful people. If you would stand as I read 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, if you would stand as you read God's word. Before I read, I want to quickly note uh, why I think it's important to stand for, for God's word. Um, I don't want it to be out of a routine religious regulation. Um, as far as I am aware, there's nothing in the Bible that says you must stand when you read God's word. Um, I'm sure there is a passage, I believe it's in Ezra and Nehemiah, that we kind of get this idea from. But I love it because we are starting off standing in honor and recognition that God's word is the authority of our life. That is why we stand for the reading of God's word. We'll start in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was being boiled with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to take for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the, that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. 
If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel." Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed one, or Messiah. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. You may have a seat. That is a very long narrative. Um, There is so much to cover in there. But just as some context for where we are in the book of 1 Samuel, is that we are reading a book about the preparation for Israel to be a kingdom of priests with a special emphasis of how they're to be a kingdom of priests under the authority and leadership of the Messiah. As I read the passage in verse 35, I kind of stopped where it says the anointed one or Messiah. Here, when it says anointed one, it's that Hebrew word, Mashiach, Messiah. So what we've been learning is preparing Israel to be a kingdom of priests under Christ. We started out in the first chapter where we are reminded how all this took place at the beginning of 1 Samuel during the period of the Judges. We read about how Hannah was barren. She couldn't bear children. And at the climax of the chapter, she prays to the Lord. And she doesn't ask the Lord for a son. 
She doesn't ask the Lord for a daughter. She doesn't ask the Lord using the generic term children. She asks the Lord for a uh, child using a very important term, seed. And that word, seed, was involved in the promise that God gave Abraham, that God would multiply his seed, his descendants, as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Hannah knew that promise, and Hannah wanted to be part of that promise. And she was barren, and she asked the Lord to be part of that promise, and God granted her prayer. And so, as we're reading the book, the first thing we're reminded of that God has a plan with Israel, and that God is continuing that plan with Israel. And then, after that chapter, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah's prayer is recorded. Hannah's prayer is all about her faith that the Lord would reverse the situation of Israel, that they would no longer be a people that are sinning in rebellion against the Lord, experiencing his wrath and punishment from other nations, but that God would reverse that situation. In verse 10, she prays that the Lord would give strength to his king, his anointed one, his Messiah. So chapter 2, the prayer ends with a reference to the Messiah, and then in this narrative, it ends with a reference to the Messiah. So as we're reading this book about Israel receiving a king, it's not just to teach them about how they were to act with David as a king. It was to teach them how they're to act, how they're to serve the Lord with the coming king, the Messiah. And with all of this in mind, First and Second Samuel picks up on this theme of the Messiah, and there is an important lesson Israel needs to know. There is this grand future that they have, right? Christ is going to defeat Satan by the work of the Messiah as the king. He's going to bring back all the blessings that were lost at Eden because of Adam's sin. The second Adam, Christ is going to restore all those blessings. And Israel's promised to have a special part of that plan. And it's really interesting, as reading a commentator who noted of all the warfare that we see in First and Second Samuel, of all the stories of David and Goliath, there is a theme that is focused on first. It is a theme of the purity of the leadership that needs to be there. Israel can't first, can, cannot enjoy, cannot understand their function, their purpose with Messiah as king unless they are pure. It is not just living around Christ as our king and we can do whatever we want. God has expectations for them. And God will not let there be crooked leadership under his Messiah. Will not let there be a crooked people under his Messiah. So that, all of that is context. All of that is context. And so now we can jump in chapter 2, verse 11. And just quickly here, chapter 11, kind of a transition from Hannah's prayer to this narrative. So Elkanah, who was Hannah's husband, he's going to his hometown in Ramah. And then what verses 11 and 12 do, they actually go together. They're actually parallel. And what these verses do, if this is a narrative, and I, I like explaining how the Bible uses narrative to teach us things. In a narrative, there's kind of the background information, 
And in the background information, there's kind of a hint at a problem that needs to be resolved, right? We did that with Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 1, where it said she had no children. So the need was she needed to have children, right? Well, here, in this background information, verses 11 and 12, a problem is presented. It's presented with um, two types of people. So we see one type of person, Samuel, says, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. What Samuel, what the author is doing with Samuel is that Samuel is being described as someone who is submissive to God and serving God. And he's doing it in the presence of Eli the priest. So Samuel is both subordinate, submissive to Eli, whom the Lord put in his position to be over him, and the Lord. So this is just a quick, big picture look of Samuel. Look at verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Sometimes it's a little difficult to see in the English um, because of chapter titles, but in the Hebrew, these are actually put next to each other. So that we're thinking in our mind, this is a comparison of two types of people. Samuel, who's serving the Lord, Eli's sons and his family, who are described as worthless and who do not know the Lord. We talked about Samuel. Big picture is that he's submissive to God. He's submissive to the human, the, the human leadership that God put in his life. And we're going to read that Eli was crooked himself. But that was not an excuse for Samuel to not be submissive. Samuel was still submissive. Now let's look at um, Eli's sons described here as worthless men. So in some translations, they'll have the words sons of Belial. So they say sons of Belial because the Hebrew says that they're sons of Belial. It's B'nai Belial. So Belial, Belial, some translations, they want to keep the specific use of that term Belial and have it stick, right? Like that is a son of Belial. But we have to ask our question, what does Belial mean? Some translations, like the ESV, says worthless men. So the question is, why were they worthless? Um, and there's different ideas of what worthless means in this context. So the best way to find out how are they worthless is to look at the context. And here's what we're going to see in the context. Is they were worthless because they were rebellious and insubordinate. And we get that by the next phrase where it says, they did not know the Lord. When it says they did not know the Lord, on one hand, it means that they did not have a relationship with God, right? And it goes further than that, though. Not only did they not have a relationship with God, but they refused to acknowledge God as the moral authority of their life. It's very similar to Exodus 5.2, and I have it written down here, where we see that Pharaoh did not know the Lord, I'll just read the passage. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and also I will not let Israel go. So kind of using this verse as, as an example for understanding what does it mean they did not know the Lord, Pharaoh had enslaved the entire Hebrew people. At that time, some of them were worshiping the Lord. He would have known that there was this people he had enslaved who worshiped a God called Yahweh. He knew of it, but here's what it means by he did not know Yahweh, is that he refused to accept Yahweh's authority. 
That's what it means. It's the same construction in Exodus 5.2. It's the same construction here in the language. These sons were insubordinate and insubordinate to the Lord. Sure, they were insubordinate to their dad. We'll read later that they, their, da- his, their dad told them something and they refused to listen. But first of all, they were insubordinate and rebellious against God, specifically through his word. And we're going to see that here because if you look down at verse 13, it says the custom. Now, what this word custom means, um, what this word custom means, it means it refers to divine commands similar to the ceremonial use of the Torah. Throughout Leviticus, for example, the Israelites are told to observe God's commands in the prescribed way. I took that definition from a theological dictionary. And what this brings out was that what the custom was supposed to be, what their custom was supposed to be was what God's word said. But here's what they did. Had their own custom, their own tradition. I mean, sure, as we read it, it looked a little bit about what God told them to do, but with a slight twist. And the twist is that they were going to do what God prescribed in a manner to benefit them the most. So we read in verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. We look at verse 13 and here's what we see. We see that they came prepared to act in a certain way. It wasn't they came and they found a three-pronged fork, which was designed in a specific way to basically catch as much meat as possible when they put it in the pot. They had, they had thought through, what instrument can I take to this worship service today to get as much benefit for myself? And they came prepared to the house of God to worship with God's people with a mindset. How can I benefit the most. So that is the first, that's the first description of their insubordination. Is that while they came to a place where they're supposed to serve God, they really came to serve themselves because they were really their own authority. They had made themselves their own authority. And what I'm describing here is kind of just the breath of their of their insubordination. They were insubordinate to the Lord in so many ways. And so in verse 14, it says, And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. So there was all these different pots. They were using to cook this meat that was supposed to be used for the sacrifice. And that was supposed to teach something about God. We'll get into that in a little bit. And here's what the author is noting. They had came prepared to take what they wanted And there was nothing that they did not keep themselves from. They thought they owned anything and everything. And I'm telling you that as I was uh, studying this passage, so much conviction came to mind. How many times do we come to church just wanting just to do things for ourselves? How many times do we walk around church, and I'm asking myself this question too, thinking, oh, nothing's off limits to me. I'm in this position. I'm in that position. I've been at this church for you know, so many years. These were the thoughts that were leading these people to act this way. 
And this is not how God's people are to act in his kingdom or think or behave. So the breath of their insubordination, that's a hard word to say. The breath of their rebellion, they came prepared. Nothing was off limits to them. They took what God said in his word and they changed it and did it in a way to benefit themselves. And what we're going to read in verse 15, well, at the end of verse 14, so they did this at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. In verse 15, see the word moreover, what the author is doing from there, he's saying it only gets worse. He's saying it only gets worse. That's what moreover means. He wants to bring attention to something that else they did that was terrible and sinful. In verse 15, it records how before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Before we get to 16, what I want to point out here is that they were claiming, they were putting their claim on something that belonged to God. The sacrifice was supposed to be done in a certain way. The meat was supposed to be boiled to a certain point. And they were supposed to take part of the sacrifice and burn part of the sacrifice, actually the best part of the sacrifice, and burn it up and so that it goes up to the Lord. And the purpose of this is that it was a picture. It was a picture of Israel responding in worship, knowing that God had saved them from slavery to Pharaoh, and knowing that God had saved them from slavery to Pharaoh to bring them into slavery to himself. And I use the word slavery because that's the Hebrew word aved in Exodus. They were slaves to Pharaoh, a wicked, evil master, and the Lord saved them to bring them into slavery to a good master, who is the Lord. And Israel was to respond in these worship services by offering, um, offering an animal and that would picture, that, like, yes, the Lord redeemed us, and we have sin in our lives, and the Lord forgives, and they're supposed to respond in worship and thankfulness with this sacrifice. And part of it would be, we're giving the best to you, Lord. What did Eli's sons want? They wanted the best for themselves. And here is how it even got even worse. The pagan nations around them, they would always take the best for themselves. So not only are they taking what belonged to God, but they're acting like other nations. And we've got to think about the purpose of Israel. In Exodus 19, it says they were to be a kingdom of priests. God positioned the nation of Israel in a very strategic location in the Middle East. They were on a major trade route so that everyone in the south that wanted to trade with the north, they had to go through Israel. Same thing with the north to the south so that people would come through the land and see how Israel was acting, see what they were teaching, and it would teach something about who their God is. So their sin impacted the people. It impacted the mission that the Lord had for them. And while I'm not going off on applications, I hope we can see the application here, right? Because Christ gave us a command 
to be his witnesses. We can look at Israel as stationary missionary people. And in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Christ tells the church to go, who are similar in many ways. So how we act, what we teach about God's word, how the world sees us, how other Christians sees us matters and is important. Looking at verse 16, we see that it says, and if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. By this threatening violence, they asserted their complete control over the situation, or they were claiming to have complete control over what God prescribed. Since this was a habitual pattern or this new twisted custom, they probably began to believe that they were in control. When I say a habitual pattern, one thing I forgot to mention earlier, um, the verbs here in Hebrew are very specific. They tell us about a habitual pattern that happened over and over and over again. And it's important for us to know as, as Christians we're saved and sometimes we make mistakes. Uh, sometimes we, we make mistakes. I'm not going to qualify it with a sometimes. We make mistakes and we sin, right? And we're called to repentance. These, people, these men here were not repenting. We're going to read later um, how Eli brings that out. They were warned, and this was a pattern they exhibited in their lives. Verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. When we think of offering, again, we have to remember that this was something that was supposed to be done out of hearts of worship to the Lord. And instead of worshiping the Lord, they despised the Lord. And now we have a sigh of relief because we get to read about someone who was humble, right? So this is a breath of fresh air in verse 18. We had just learned about these insubordinate, rebellious leaders who were their own authority. They made themselves their own authority. They were selfish. It was all for themselves. And now we finally come to Samuel. Um, there are so many good things to say in this passage about Samuel and Samuel's family. So we read in verse 18 um, that Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And he's, so he's described here as a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Okay, how were Eli described? How was Eli's sons described? They were described holding something in their hand, right? It was a fork so that they can control the fork and get whatever they want, right? So we hear, see here that Samuel's intentionally also described in a certain way. So they're being contrasted with he's wearing a linen ephod. You might be thinking, what's in, what's in an ephod? What this was, it was, a, it was something that priests and Levites would use when they received revelation from God. So Eli's sons were armed with forks to get whatever food they wanted, and, and they would take it by force. Samuel was armed with something that reminded him that he was to be submissive to God's word. And so we're going to continue reading about Samuel, who is submissive to God's word. He's contrasted to Eli's sons. And also note in verse 19, 
His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So much to say here, and I'll just summarize it quickly. The little robe was normal for Levites and people from the family of Levi to wear in a temple. And note how this was every year. So Samuel was growing, right? And his mother made him a little robe. In narratives, how a person is portrayed is important. The author is bringing out this comment about a little robe each year, because every year Samuel had a mother in his life reminding him to be humble. That's, what, that's why this is being brought out, that this is a group event. This isn't a rogue person living his life alone, isolated for God. This young man had the help of his family. And especially what we see here is the power of a mother to raise her children to love God and to be humble. This society belittles women in so many ways, especially belittles women's roles at home to serve their husband, to serve the Lord, while the husband's at work to train their children, train the children in the way of the Lord. And here's what we're going to see of Samuel throughout this book that Samuel becomes a judge. He's a judge his entire life. He becomes uh, one of the major prophets in the book of First and Second Samuel, and he anoints two kings of Israel. He leads Israel in God's word when they are sinning. He leads them out um, in victory against the Philistines. He leads them in God's word. God, use, God uses mothers train your children. Get more training yourselves, fathers and mothers. And Elkanah is not left out here. We'll see in verse 20, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Okay. In the English right here, it says, for the petition she asked. Hebrew, it doesn't say she. It says he, referring to Elkanah. And I can understand translations wanting to change it to she because they look back like, oh, no, no, it was Hannah who asked. It was Hannah who asked. Hannah asked and also was submissive to her husband. It was a joint effort. It was Hannah and her husband involved. And so what Eli is doing, Eli has recognized that this family, both the husband and the wife, are dependent on the Lord. While at certain times Hannah is emphasized, Elah had an important role. If you remember that Hannah asked um, Elkanah, excuse me, Elkanah, permission to take her son to do certain things in the first chapter. And that's brought out because as many issues as Elkanah had, he had issues, right? We see the Lord using his parents for good. And so what we see here is the power of a family who is godly, who is doing things the way that God meant for families to do. And one other thing I mentioned here about Eli is that Eli learned from this family. If you look down at verse 20, when Eli gives a blessing, he says, may the Lord give you children. Um, in Hebrew, it's not the word um, children, which is yiladim. That's children. This is the word zarah, seed. In the first chapter, 
Eli remembered and learned. Hannah asked the Lord for seed. So Eli learned from this family. So what we are seeing here, this humble family, Elkanah was a, a man of wealth. He had means to provide. So his wife makes his son a little robe every year. Nothing significant. Nothing to tempt him to be prideful. Nothing to tempt him to say, I want more. I want bigger. I want better. His family taught Samuel to be submissive to God's word and to be content with what God had given him. And verse 21 says, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So our moment of fresh air is over with Samuel, and we have to read about um, more ridiculousness. I'm not sure if that's a word, but that's what's being described here in verses 22. It says, Now Eli was very old. So we, just, we see Eli being described after decades and decades and decades of being involved in ministry, decades of not putting a stop to the sin of his sons. He had multiple responsibilities as a father. He was responsible for them. And as high priest, he was responsible for what happened at the worship center. And he failed both. He failed both, and that's what's going to be revealed here, is that Eli was indifferent not only to insubordination, not only to rebellion, but he was also indifferent to sexually immoral leaders. In verse 22, we read how after decades and decades, it says, he kept hearing. When it says he kept hearing, again, the Hebrew is describing something that was routine. Not only was this something that he heard over a long time, but this was as routine as a to-do list. And part of studying this passage, the actual construction that was used with these words is the same constructions the Hebrew used for to-do lists. We're reading the to-do list of Eli when he continued to hear about his son's rebellion. And we see he called them out for their sin, where he says, hey, I kept hearing all, all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they, li- they lay with the woman who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And it goes on where Eli addresses them. So he would have said this over and over again, asking them, why are you doing these things? I'm hearing of the evil that you're doing. No, it's not good of what you're doing. And then he even says something very true. He brings out the seriousness of their specific sin against God. But here's the problem. He's just all words. And he does not take leadership, does not put an end to the sin. So that is Eli described in verse 26. What I've noticed in this passage is that the author will give us a lot of bad news and kind of sprinkle some good news. Kind of verse 26, like, oh, don't forget about Samuel. And this good news is that on one hand, the Lord in his mysterious ways will allow sin to continue in mysterious ways that don't make sense, that do not make sense to us. He allows it. The Lord's in control. He can put an end to it. And at the same time, the Lord is raising up 
a faithful people. The Lord is in control and has a plan. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And part of what we see in verse 26, Samuel grew up in a dangerous environment. Well, when I say grew up, he was in a dangerous environment because he was around a whole bunch of sinners. The leader was allowed sin to happen. Samuel most definitely would have thought, oh, I can do this sin. If Eli lets his sons get away with it, surely I can get away with it, right? And so we see the Lord in his providence preserving this young man. Part of it was the Lord used his family, right? And so verse 26 gives us this final contrast with Samuel. And this closes up this contrast that we have. Remember, this is in the context of Israel is about to receive a king in the near future. Israel would one day receive the Messiah, and all of this is teaching them how are they to act, how is a leadership to act. So with those two contrasts now being established, insubordinate and sexually immoral versus humble submissiveness to God's word, the Lord in verse 27 sends a prophet sends a prophet to deliver a message straight from the mouth of God to Eli. And here's what we're going to see in verses 27 to 29, is that what we're going to see is that Yahweh rejects insubordinate and sexually immoral leaders. He rejects them. And what we're going to see in verses 27 to 29 is the basis for the Lord rejecting them. There is a reason why um, the Lord rejects sexual, uh, immoral, and insubordinate leaders and is based off of who he is. I think there's lots of reasons as we look around with all the sexual immorality going on in the world in so many ways. I think there's lots of reasons and good reasons that we have that we get angry. The reason why God gets angry is because it is completely opposite from who he is. The basis for the rejection of insubordinate, rebellious, and sexually immoral leaders is we first understand it by understanding who is God. That's what we see in verse 27. And the Lord reveals this by asking questions. So in verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, here comes the questions, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Comes another question. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? Here's what's happening in these questions. The Lord first shows that they are offending him personally. He re God revealed himself not only to Israel, but to a specific son, the son of Levi. They're the tribe to be priests. And the Lord also brings up his election. Not only does God cho chose a nation, not only does God choose people to follow him, but God specifically is involved with choosing the leaders. 
And then next is that his rejection of them is based off of the purpose that they were supposed to have in leading. And that is to be a witness of Yahweh, a witness of the Lord. And that would have entailed to be his priests. So that would involve a position of teaching people God's word, go up to his altar. So that involved their leadership role in the worship service to burn incense, carry the ephod, to have all the fires, fire offerings of the sons of Israel. These are all different ways to describe their job and their main job was to teach people who God is, to encourage them to repent of their sins, to call them to repent of their sins. And they did none of this. That is, this is the basis of God rejecting them. And then God calls them to examine themselves. God calls all people who serve him to examine himself by asking these two questions. Two questions that examine the heart. First one is, why do you kick at my sacrifices and offerings? And what that means is, why is God so worthless to them? So the first question that has us ask, do we act in ways or are we living in a way that would send a picture to others that God is worthless? The second one is, why do you make your sons fat from what belonged to God? So this brings out is that they were really only there from, to benefit for themselves. Do we come to church to benefit for ourselves? Or are we here to worship Jesus for what he has done for us? And are we here to serve others because of what Jesus did for us? And so we first receive the basis for why the Lord is about to reject Eli and his house from being his priests. And then verse 30, the Lord describes this judgment that's going to come against them. So if you look down at verse 30, the Lord brings out how he made this promise to Eli's household. And you'll note where it says, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. Then it says, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. That phrase means if these people were to continue serving forever, it would be something that would contradict who God is because they represent God. So God would not let them continue serving him, not let them represent him anymore. And so the, the prophet brings out also the manner and how the sons are going to die. And at that, the specific way they are dying, that they're going to die is because the Lord has rejected them. It was a sign. It was a prophecy of what was going to happen. And in if we, verses 31 to 34, I'm just going to go a little faster here. Um, we read about the specifics of what God's going to do and that when we read the story, God does what he specifically says he's going to do. He rejects. Now, verses 35 to 36. We should be at a point, every single one of us, asking, how on earth can I not be rejected? There's sin in my life. There's temptation all the time, right? We mess up. We're not perfect. How on earth can I make it? 
That's the question the narrator wants you to ask at this point. If you are feeling queasy or unqualified to be here, and as I was studying this passage driving up, I felt uneasy because I know there's sin in my life. But then verse 35. Verse 35 is the hope that we have. And the hope that we have has always been Christ. I mentioned earlier that there's this promise the Lord has made, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. I wanted this to be the longest part of my sermon, and that did not turn out. Um, Look at the term anointed one. We need to talk about the identification of this anointed one, of this Messiah. Um, Commentaries have different ideas. Um, One is that, so what a lot of commentaries bring out is that this is Christ. Um, This is the promised king that was sang about in Hannah's prayer. And so we also, we have another character here. It's a faithful priest. So I think we can quickly understand that the anointed one is the Messiah. He's the king, right? So the question really is, who is this faithful priest, right? Is this Samuel? Who, who is it? Um, some commentators will say, some of them will say that the faithful priest refers to Christ because we know Hebrews says that Jesus is the high faithful priest, right? The high priest and he's faithful, right? Well, this passage, it talks about how the Lord will raise up a faithful priest who will walk before the anointed one, the Messiah. Christ is one person. He is God who has took on human flesh. He didn't take on a second person, but he is one person who took on humanity. We read here about two people interacting with one another. So it, doesn't, it really doesn't seem like this uh, faithful priest in this verse is talking about Christ is a faithful priest who is serving Christ. Um, And I'll just say quickly, it's not specifically Samuel. Samuel's never referred to as a priest, although he helps out in priestly duties. He's referred to as a judge. Um, He's also a prophet. Um, But this verse is not specifically talking about Samuel. It's not specifically, or I'll say only talking about David either. Language is used about how the Lord will build David a house a lasting, enduring house, but is a kingly house. This is talking about the position of serving God as a priest in some manner. So who is a faithful priest? Well, let's answer this question by examining the text quickly. So the first words, it says, we're going to learn about who is this faithful priest. First we read, and I will raise up for myself Here's the first thing we learn about this faithful priest. Yahweh is the source, cause, and the purpose of this person's faithfulness. Um, In the language there, it says, I will raise up. It's the causative um, tense in Hebrew, meaning that the person who is a subject causes it to happen. Yahweh is the source, the cause, and purpose for the person's faithfulness. Secondly, the person is a faithful representative of God. That's what it means 
to be a faithful priest. You are faithfully representing who God is to people. Thirdly, the person serves God faithfully. Fourth, Yahweh will ensure the faithfulness of this person's ministry because it is the Lord who has caused this to happen. And note where he says, I will build him a sure house. That's the language of lasting, preserving. The reason why we can have faith that we're not rejected is because God preserves his people who are truly his people. And the reason why we have faith that we won't be rejected is most of all found in this next part of the verse. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Earlier we read about how the Lord was telling Eli, I said before that you and your house would walk before me, would go before me forever. It's the same language here. Whoever, when it says go in before my Messiah, it's saying that this Messiah is God. And this person, the language of someone going in and before God is someone who's in a relationship receiving benefits from God. They're being sustained by God. So here we have the doctrine of the preservation of God's people because of their relationship to the Messiah. Isn't it so wonderful that Samuel had that truth here? The Old Testament had this truth here. Isn't it so much wonderful in our position where they looked forward to God accomplishing this? We looked back, not only back, but we look now because of the many benefits that we have. So just as an ending encouragement, the Lord takes sin seriously. We should take sin seriously. Um, and our confidence is in Christ. Um, Christ saved us from slavery to our sin. Um, a passage, verse I was going to read, I would just encourage you to read it later, is Psalm 101. Psalm 101 is a wonderful psalm. Talks about much about what we learned today. And let me just be clear, our hope is in Christ. He will give you the strength you need to get to the place that you need to be. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, you are holy, Lord. There is no one like you. Uh, your son, Christ, is the faithful one. He ensures that we will remain faithful. Lord, May we go today thinking and worshiping Christ for all he's done for us. In your son's name, amen.